You're listening to Christianity 101, a Sunday school series taught by the elders and deacons of Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Uh, the, the real question that we're going to be talking about today is who was Jesus? And sort of in this session, I have the next two weeks, and uh, this session we're going to be more uh, kind of proving from history that Jesus was a real person and looking at some of the claims that he made and um, establishing that he is who we say he is um, and who we believe he is. So, when Jesus came uh, to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And his disciples answered with a variety of ideas. Some thought John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah. Basically, they thought that he was a reborn eclectic preacher or a reborn prophet, ancient prophet. And that's kind of interesting. I don't know why they would think that. But anyway, that is only what his friends said. If you would have asked his enemies, they would have called him maybe a drunkard or a glutton or a blasphemer. But one thing is sure, whoever Jesus was, he was a very polarizing figure. I wonder if we took a poll today what people would say. Would they call him just a cultural rebel, thinking of all those countercultural activities that he did or actions? Or would they focus on his parables and just call him a wise man, a philosopher, or just a good moral teacher? After Jesus asked that question, he moved on more directly, asking them specifically, who do you say that I am? And as believers this morning, we respond to that question the same confession that Peter made, Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. We could also answer with a shorter version, the central, the whole idea, the creed of the whole church in all ages, simply Jesus is Lord. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Lord. This morning we want to establish this point using biblical and historical sources so that we can be sure and ready, always able to give an answer to every man that asks a reason for the hope that is in us. One special issue, though, that immediately emerges when we are given this task of proving that Christ is Lord, you know, 2,000 years ago, um, in our context, our modern, enlightened, skeptical age, I think it's necessary to defend the Scriptures a little bit. Um, and give. We have to defend the Scriptures so we can give an apologetic about Christ. Because it's only the scriptures, really, that inform us about Jesus in that way. We don't get that from Josephus. Um, In our thoughts and conversations, we can be tempted sometimes to doubt the reliability of the Bible. Do the Gospels really present to us historically accurate narratives? The skeptic and higher critic will argue and reject many of the proofs for biblical history, or historicity, based not on any contradictions, or facts, but generally as a result of two presuppositions. So they've already come to a position before they even look at it. The critic rejects what we believe, not because our faith is indefensible, or isn't indefensible, but because they have already submitted to false worldview that is not compatible with Scripture. The first presupposition we can call hard materialism. It's basically the idea that anything supernatural is not real. So any source that contains it must therefore be fiction. 
obviously this worldview is incompatible with Christianity because the core tenets of our faith are essentially miraculous. Creation, incarnation, resurrection, they're all inherently supernatural. So then the Christian must accept the miraculous in his worldview. The second presupposition is that the writers of Scripture were biased. They would say that, which discredits them as a reliable source. I think there are a few things that can be said in response to this objection. Number one, the detail-oriented structure of the New Testament. So we see in the New Testament, very, and even in the Old Testament, very detailed accounts of the events they describe. I just pulled a couple quotes from some famous literature, and uh, we see sort of how, um, how they talk about things in actual fiction. Uh, this is a quote from the Odyssey. Tell me, O muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he sacked the famous town of Troy. Many cities did he visit, and many were the nations whose manners and customs he was acquainted with. It's just many this and many that, and it's very vague in these general sweeping statements. And then we have from Moby Dick. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, Having no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about to the watery part of the world. Again, just, he says it right in there. It doesn't matter how long ago it was. Nothing matters. It's all fiction. However, this is the opening line of the third chapter of Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, And it goes on and on and on. Very specific. One of these quotes is not like the others. (laughs) If the writers of the New Testament had deceptive intentions, they probably should have used more vague writing style, and it would have been much more difficult to disprove. Issue number, or rebuttal number two, the candor of the New Testament, or its full disclosure. The writers of the New Testament, if they were writing fiction, about themselves and their friends and prominent Christian leaders, they would likely not have included such details as that of Peter denying that he knew Jesus to a little girl. That doesn't really prop Peter up very well. And then, uh, rebuttal number three, the heavenliness of its content and the foolishness of the gospel. What I mean is what Paul talks about in Corinthians when he says that Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. No one in the ancient world was looking for a hero that got crucified. A crucified Savior is simply the worst kind of Savior to them. It was the worst kind of myth to invent, unless, of course, it was true and he raised again. With those objections answered, and we'll we'll have to revisit them as we go along, let's move on to find, uh, see what we find in the non-biblical secular historical sources. Beginning with... Cornelius Tacitus, dubbed the greatest historian of ancient Rome, Tacitus's writings covered from A.D. 14 to A.D. 96, so almost the whole bulk of the first century. In his book, The Annals, he writes about the great fire of Rome in A.D. 64. And for some reason at that time, the public believed that Nero was responsible for setting the fire. And so here's what Tacitus writes about that. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punished with most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians. 
A.D. 64, commonly called Christians, who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. So, very detailed account of something involving Christians, and the detail again of Pontius Pilate. So that's the first thing I think we should look at. This is actually only one of very few extra-biblical mentions of Pilate from history. Skeptics across the board doubted the authenticity of this entry because we didn't have any concrete physical evidence of Pilate really existing. There were no coins, no papyri, no scrolls. Everything had been destroyed. However, in 1961, an Italian archaeologist found a two-foot-by-three-foot piece of limestone at the ruins of a stadium in Caesarea, of all places. And carved in that rock was the name of the title Pontius Pilate Prefectus Judea, carved right in the rock. Interestingly, we don't argue with the higher critics about this part of the biblical record anymore. Um, it's 100% accepted. We should also notice how he talks about the Christians. He calls them a pernicious and superstitious, calls them pernicious and superstitious, and likens them to something like a disease breaking out. It would then appear that in Tacitus's day that Christianity is spreading. Again, it's described describing events from the year A.D. 64, and this record irrefutably states that Christians really existed. It proves the early presence of Christians. Already spread and settled in Rome, which was 2,300 kilometers and 1,400 miles from Israel. Mm-hmm. Finally, um, the, myst- or the mystics, the skeptics do have objections. They call themselves Jesus mythicists. And um, what they don't like is they claim that Tacitus uses the word Christus, and that, that means he's not talking about who we would call Jesus, because it's spelt like Christ with a U-S at the end. Um, So they make the claim that there was no Jesus, and that this Christus that is mentioned is a different troublemaker from Judea, who also had a following of people called Christians, and who also was put to death by Pontius Pilate. But Christus, in their mind, is without a doubt not to be confused with our Christ. Moving on... uh, Suetonius, another Roman historian, mentions Christians in relation to the great fire of Rome and also in relation to an even earlier event. In his book, Life of Claudius, he writes, As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, so a different writing here, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. It's funny, as we have this exact same event recorded in Acts 18. I'll read it. And found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome and came unto them. And so what was going on here was some Jews were creating havoc in Rome. It says constant disturbances. I don't know what that is. Um, I think we see some of that in the record of Scripture. And so much trouble was being caused that the Roman government expelled them from the city. All the Jews were sent packing. And this happened in A.D. 49, a little bit less than 20 years after the time of Jesus' death. 
Interesting to note that with no Jews in the city, when 15 years later we have the great fire in Rome, um, they blame, Nero blames the Christians because there's no, no more Jews to blame. So, um, moving on now to Josephus. He was a Jewish historian who was on the Roman payroll, so definitely not a Christian sympathizer. His two works were The Jewish War and Jewish Antiquities, and his later work, Antiquities, there is a well-known and hotly debated text that refers to Jesus and some details of his life. So we're going to look at that text, and then look at the objections that the critics would make, and then reread the text uh, with the um, objections corrected. Because some of them are probably additions. Anyway, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. So it doesn't exactly sound like something a Jewish Roman person would say about Jesus. Um, So I don't think he would have affirmed Christ's resurrection or thousands of his miracles and prophecies. Um, unless we find like an authentic early early copy, then it's probably not the case that uh, he wrote those things. So if we look at all of the really pro-Jesus, if we take all those pro-Jesus editions out, we still have quite a, a fantastic text. At this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following among many Jews and among many Gentile in origin. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so, and up until this very day the tribe of Christians named after him had not died out. So there we see a first century record of Jesus from an officially twice biased writer, Jewish by faith and Roman by employment. A few things worth looking at before moving on. When he calls Jesus a wise man, it might sound to us like he's paying tribute to Jesus, but really it would more likely be that he's writing against the claims of Christians that would say that he is more than just a wise man. So it would be a way to kind of undercut his claim to deity. Oh yeah, he was a wise man, but not God. And so like many people in our day, Josephus just looked at Christ as another good moral teacher. The other thing about this quote that should get our attention is another mention of Pilate and the crucifixion. We see again this unfortunate prefect of Judea eternally associated with the crucifixion of the Son of God. Remember, it wasn't until recently that we had evidence of his existence, but in God's providence, he's made sure that all the world knows of Pilate and his undeniable interactions with Jesus. God has not preserved for us the stable which Jesus was born or the cross that he died on. No, God found it wise 
to preserve an indisputable record of Pilate, the man who gave the order to put Christ to death, the man whose name is peppered through the last pages of all the Gospels, the man whom every believer has some knowledge of, and a man whose name appears in the Apostles' Creed for no other reason than to anchor the reality of Christ in history. We can take great comfort in that. Later on, Josephus mentions um, the martyrdom of the brother of Christ, James. Uh, And this is the quote, Albinus was still on the road, so he assembled a council of judges and brought before it the brother of the so-called Christ, whose name was James, together with some others. And having accused them as lawbreakers, he delivered them over to be stoned. Sad and sobering reminder that early Christians often paid for their faith, paid dearly. The reason I include this isn't just because I like sad stories. It actually helps to bolster the first quotation of Josephus um, because there's no introduction for Jesus. If he had never mentioned him in his earlier writings, he would likely have had to give some context to who this person was that he was talking about. And so that leads us to believe uh, that that earlier quote that we read was at, at, at a minimum mentioned Christ. Um, also, why even mention at all in your chronicles a bunch of lawbreakers getting stoned? Like, what does that have to do with anything? There's no relevance to James except that he is related to Jesus. So there we have it. Your neighbor, co-worker, family member has no grounds to mis- dismiss Jesus as being at minimum a real historical figure. We are not here to simply confess that 2,000 years ago, the son of a Jewish carpenter lived in Palestine. Remember, we, along with Peter and the apostles, confess that Jesus is Lord. So let's now look at the evidence that tells us that Jesus is more than just a man. Careful biblical scholarship has yielded some incredible insights into some early Christian hymns and confessions that were passed on verbally in the years prior to the New Testament. These would chronologically be our earliest records of Jesus, some being spoken by the apostles and others by the very word mouth of Christ. In a sense, they're short, teachable, memorized, catchphrase-type statements that are pre-testamental. They were part of the life of the church before the church even had a New Testament. The confessions and formulas were so important to the life of the early church that the authors of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Ghost, included them in their writings and eventually resulted in their preservation for us, the church. It's a shame that most of us have probably read them hundreds of times and never even realized what we were reading. Well, not anymore. I found this so fascinating when I came across it. I hope you do as well. Um, Actually, if someone wants to read, I got a couple verses. Uh, Luke 24, 33 to 34. Pastor? Yes. And then if someone wants to get ready, Romans 10, 8 to 10. Eric? And then we'll also look at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 26 in a little bit. Rachel? 11, 23 and 26. 23 to 26. All right. So go ahead, Pastor, with Luke. Okay, so it's 24, 30, 34? Yeah. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and then that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed 
and has appeared to Simon. Does that sound familiar? The Lord is risen indeed. Lord, he is risen indeed. The eleven and those that were with them were gathered together in one room, saying to each other, The Lord is risen indeed. That's right. We still make this confession today every Easter. The reason this confession is interesting to us in our pursuit to confirm a Messiah is the, um, because it's actually an eyewitness testimony of the resurrected Christ. It has been permanently recorded and for two millennia repeated amongst believers. This is Peter and the apostles' attestation to a risen Christ. Remember that next Easter. It's more than just a fun tradition. It really does anchor that event in history. Um, Romans 10? Romans 10, 8 to 10. 8 to 10, yep. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Thank you. So this formula that Paul uses is sort of a summary of all the apostolic teaching. The ideas expressed that Jesus is resurrected Lord and Messiah are being affirmed as a central idea. It's believed that these words would have been used in early church baptisms as a formalized public profession for new believers, very similar to what our baptism candidates affirm during baptism today. It's almost the same lines. Um, So this teaching is what was believed by Paul the Apostles and early converts, that Jesus is Lord, meaning God and King, and that he was indeed dead, but now is alive, raised by the Father. There's no way to come away from a text like this um, and think that Christ's followers were just excited about the ethics of a charismatic rabbi. The public use of this creedal statement doesn't allow for that. If we think about what their cultural context was and the severe weight of such a profession, this kind of language would be considered revolutionary and not in like the novel or new sense of revolutionary, but a legitimate treasonous sense of revolutionary. To publicly profess Jesus as Lord would have marked you as a dissenter to the Roman state and a threat. So as Paul and Holy Spirit here preserve for us in the ancient confession, we can be assured that Christ was believed to be their Messiah. Even the threat of death and persecution did not lead them to doubt or be silent. Rather, here is the record they preach, this word with conviction. All right. First uh, Corinthians 11. Receive from yeah. the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Thank you. Uh, no doubt these words are familiar to us at uh, M- Maple City. Um, we say them every Lord's Supper. And it's easy to imagine this scene. Um, Jesus in the upper room, dining with the twelve, prophetically speaking these things with authority to his disciples. But also, we can sort of be detached from it and not realize what we're really imagining. 
Um, anything we do regularly can fall into a, a cold religious formula and, and lose its meaning. So what we need to remember is, especially this morning in our quest to affirm uh, Jesus as Lord, is that these very words were spoken by Jesus as attested by the eyewitnesses in that room. We have that room taken right to us in our context today. By God's grace, they've been preserved and repeated in his church as a continual reminder of his life, death, and hope that we have in him. So in summary, I just have a quote from Josh McDowell. He kind of sums it up like this. It is clear that these pre-New Testament creeds provide the earliest testimony of, to the church's conviction that Jesus, the sinless God-man, actually lived, died, and rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven for the salvation of anyone who would confess him as Lord and truly believe that God resurrected him. And so now we've looked at three early Christian creeds that uh, attest to the belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Interestingly, um, I don't know if you picked this up, but like they're all still used in the church life today. And that's really, really neat. Christian churches around the world use these historically rooted confessional statements during the ordinances of baptism, Lord's Supper, and every Easter. So before diving into some Old Testament scriptures, I think we should uh, turn to Acts 17, 2, and 3, and notice what Paul, uh, what Paul says to the Thessalonians, or sorry, what Paul does in Thessalonica in an effort to convince them of Jesus' Messiahship. Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Then Paul, as was his manner, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures to prove this, that, that this Jesus that he preached was indeed the Christ. It also says that he emphasized the necessity of the suffering of Christ, including his death and resurrection. So let's do that. We'll take a look at some Old Testament um, prophecies that, that, that Paul probably would have used to make his case. The first one uh, would be from Genesis 3.15. We see a promise made here. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So immediately in the first few pages of Scripture, we see a motif of struggle and conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And then a promise of the victory going to the seed. This promise really does set the tone and direction for the rest of Scripture. It tells Adam and Eve and all their posterity that the Lord is going to crush the serpent with the seed of the woman. A few verses later, in chapter 4, verse 1, Eve bears for her first son Cain, or her first son Cain, and says, "I have gotten a man from the Lord." She was so excited. The tone intimates that she thought that this man was the promised seed, but we all know that that wasn't the case. This actually is a recurring theme in Scripture. A new man comes on the scene. Everyone hopes he's the promised seed, and we're all left disappointed when the man fails and falls. We see it in Abraham when he fails to trust God and takes matters into his own hands. We see it with Moses, as he's frustrated and has outbursts of anger. We see it with Saul and David and every other king of Judah. However, 
It's different with Jesus. He preached and proved that he had no fear of the serpent. When the devil offered his forbidden fruit as temptations in the desert, Jesus clung to the very words of his Father, even in his hunger and loneliness. And when the lights dimmed and it seemed like Jesus had been overcome by death, the power of God's Spirit brought him forth in newness of life, vindicating his message and his sacrifice. Psalm 110.1, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool. Jesus actually has a conversation with the Pharisees in the New Testament and, and talks to them about these verses. Jesus asks them, Who is the Messiah? And they respond, Well, the Messiah is going to be the son of David. And then Jesus comes back to them with the words, uh, in Matthew twenty-two forty-five, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And so no one could answer him. They couldn't figure out how David's son could also be his Lord. And what Jesus was pointing out to them is that a plain reading of Psalm 110 indicates that the Messiah would not only be the son of David, but also David's Lord, and it would foreshadow the kingly office of the Messiah. And it, I think it would indicate that it had to be a divine um, Messiah. Um, another verse that shows what Israel's Messiah would be is Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Here we see the prophet, or sorry, here we see the office of prophet being attributed to that Messiah. This text explains that the Messiah will come also from within Israel, and it affirms that true Israel, so believers across all time, will listen to the call of Jesus and come to rest in him. It says we will hearken unto him. That means listen. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And so what Israel can expect in their Messiah is a child, a son. That intimates the incarnation. The Messiah will be given to Israel and will do great works of wonder, healing, healing sickness and uncleanness um, with just a holy touch. And he will astound the teachers and proclaim the word of God with authority. He will be likened to the everlasting Father, and he will liken himself to the Father. He will bring peace, peace with God. And the Jesus of the four Gospels sure does resemble Isaiah's Messiah. Uh, one more prophetic verse about the Messiah's coming, Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye shall seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This text is speaking of the coming signal by a forerunner, who we read about in the New Testament as John the Baptist. Um, so just all throughout Scripture, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, to close this out, we should read Isaiah 53. Um, Pastor, do you want to read Isaiah 53? All right. 
Um, yeah, it's only 12 verses, and, and they're really good. Okay. Isaiah 53. <laughs> Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? We shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form, nor comeliness, and we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Mm-hmm. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful image of Jesus in his priestly role. Not simply transferring sins to an animal like they used to do, but taking them upon himself and being made the true sacrifice and high priest. I think Paul and the apostles would have turned to that part of the scroll often in their deliberations at the synagogues. Um, And so now we have established what the Jews were waiting for, a divine Messiah. And that first century Jesus crucified under Pontius Pilate looks an awful lot like that expectation. The only thing we could do now is actually take a minute to look at the claims of Jesus. And um, according to the eye testimonies that we call the Gospels. Firstly, one of the claims was that he uh, forgave people's sins. He claimed to have the ability to do that. Um, in one instance, it happened twice. Luke seven forty nine, or is recorded twice. Luke seven forty nine and Mark two five. The scribes that are there perceive in their hearts. Wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins, and they wrongly re- conclude then that Jesus was blaspheming. There was another option. He very well could have been God. In John five eighteen, says that Jesus was claiming equality with God. And that this is why the Jewish authorities wanted to kill him. Speaking of his death, pun intended, Jesus is recording as having prophesied his own death and resurrection. Chapter 16 of Matthew says in verse 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how they must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, 
the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again on the third day. And that's just after Peter's earlier confession of Jesus is the Son of the living God. And then that brings us to the resurrection. As we've already looked at, this was the central claim of the gathered church. Jesus had been raised, and, was, and that's still why we gather. The proofs of the res- resurrection are manifold. I feel like it's been done a lot, and we have a lot of education, so I'm just going to go over that quickly. The empty tomb. Still no one has produced a body. There's an empty tomb. The accounts list women as the first eyewitnesses, which culturally in that day was the fastest way to lose your credibility. Unless you're a follower of Jesus and are bound by the ethics of truth and honesty, you had to report it the way that it happened. Finally, my personal favorite, for what reason did 11 cowardly men become bold public preachers of the gospel if they never saw a risen Christ? There's simply no value in proclaiming a fake gospel and there's no benefit derived by the disciples. According to church history, it costs them all very much. So this morning we've looked at literally just the tip of the iceberg, like I said. The secular sources affirm to us a Palestinian Jesus that walked the earth and was executed nearly 2,000 years ago. That we know for sure. And we only went through a few of the secular sources that could be studied. There's many more. As far as the Old Testament prophecy goes, we could have stayed there all day. I've heard, or I read, one conservative source counted roughly 200 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and there was another source I found that claimed to count closer to 300. Examining the Old Testament's presentation of a suffering Messiah leads us to conclude that Jesus, and only Jesus, is that sure and certain candidate. Add to that the outbreak of early Christianity in a rapidly growing Jesus culture that impacted every native culture it came in contact with, leaving indelible, I mean, unremovable traces in the literature and historical chronicles of the day. We included those three early Christian confessions that made it into the pages of New Testament. Um, And the New Testament itself, the Gospels, the Epistles, they all point to a Jesus that was more than merely a moral teacher, or a wise rabbi. And with all these evidences before us, we can truly join with Peter and the apostles and with conviction proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And that is all I have for this morning. Next week we'll talk more about Jesus and what he actually did in his kingly and priestly and prophetic roles and also a little bit of the necessity of the God-man. Why do we affirm that as Christians? And and that's something that's unique to us and very important. So that's it.